Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. probably isn't a decision in my life that I regret more than that. I don't regret almost anything, but I probably, I think I regret that, saying yes. The golden rule for all good journalists is you protect your sources. Come what may, threats, legal proceedings, jail time, you protect your sources. But what happens when sources aren't all they seem to be? This is a story of deception, betrayal and confusion. And it begins with a taxi ride. I'm Maeve McLennigan. This is The Tip-Off. My name is Shiv Malik. I was an investigative reporter for The Guardian for five years. And now I'm a freelance. It was late 2005 and Shiv Malik was getting off a train in Leeds. He'd travelled up from London on a mission. It was an interesting project. It was fascinating, in fact. One of the most interesting projects I've worked on. Shiv was working as a researcher for a TV show. A show that was going to dramatise the events that led up to the 7-7 bombings that had happened a few months earlier. Breaking news we're getting from the PA Newswire that there's been reports of an explosion outside Liverpool Street Station. That, of course, in the east end of London. It's the, the uh, bordering area. You'll be maybe familiar with the Swiss building known as the, the Gherkin. The country uh, was still trying to make sense of the attacks, and Shiv was working on a show that aimed to fill in some of the blanks. I was doing this because we were, as a team, uh, with a scriptwriter trying to put together a drama documentary. So it's weird because obviously you're sort of putting facts in and feeding them into a dramatization of those facts. So it's a kind of an awkward project because you're like, where does truth lie? Where does fiction lie? Which turns out was the theme of the next sort of five, eight years, maybe 10 years. I'm still going at it. Shiva had been trying to get people from the communities where the bombers had come from to talk. No one would talk to us. So it was really difficult trying to get people to open up and then figure out why they wouldn't open up. Obviously, a lot of journalists had kind of trampled that ground. So people were wary of just journalists, but there was something else going on. There was something much deeper going on. And they were kind of basically scared of each other. Speaking out came at a cost that you were speaking out against your community, whatever you said, and it would get back and those people would then be hounded. But he had a lead. It had been a few months since the bombs had decimated three tube trains and a bus in London. But still not much was known about Mohammed Sadiq Khan, 
widely regarded to be the lead bomber. But Shiv had heard something, that Mohammed had a brother, a brother that worked as a taxi driver. He works the night shift at the uh, train station. So I sort of got his cab number and waited for about three, four nights in a row. And suddenly he appeared and I got in his cab and I told him to just take me to Bradford, which was the longest sort of cab journey I knew I could make. Um, which took about 25 minutes. And in that time, I sort of started to open up and tell him who I was and what I was doing. I told him I was a journalist, but I didn't tell him that I knew who he was. We get to Bradford and he says, um, and then I, and I say to him, look, I know who you are. You're Muhammad Sadiq Khan's brother, aren't you? And I, he just froze. And I thought, oh my God, he's going to throw me out of the cab or do something awful to me or, or just get violent or uh, something. And he didn't. He played it really cool. And he said, OK, what else do you know? And we started talking and we we went back to Leeds. He said, you don't want to go to Bradford, do you? I said, no, I really want to go back to Leeds. Can we go back? Um, and um, so we spent the next 20 minutes talking and we came to a deal. I couldn't interview him directly, but I could bring him information and he would tell me whether it was true or not. So that's exactly what Shiv did. For nine months, he cross-checked and verified information with the bomber's brother. It was an amazing coup. And through that, Shiv came to know more about the people that knew Mohammed. The circles of connections grew and grew. Until one day, he found himself on the doorstep of one of those men that was connected to the domestic terrorist scene. A man that would change his life. Shiv was trying to find people that might know more about the terrorist scene in the UK. People that would talk. And he'd been following a trail that led him to Manchester, to the door of Hassan Butt. Hassan was not unheard of. He'd been interviewed many times before. I think the Sun had listed him as their top five most hated jihadis in the UK kind of thing. So I decided, OK, well, look, for the sake of the script, it seems to make sense to try and speak to him. Shiv was on a mission to try and find out all he could about the background and motivations of the 7-7 bombers and the domestic terror scene in the UK. So talking to a man that had positioned himself as a voice piece for the disaffected, radical Islamist youth seemed to make a lot of sense. So I didn't quite know who to expect or what to expect when I knocked on the door. And there was this guy who was kind of energetic, a bit ebullient, sort of semi-enthusiastic and sort of said, come in, welcome, like there was this weird flat that he lived in in Cheatham Hill, which is a kind of run-down area of Manchester. I still think it's like that, um, despite all the gentrification that's gone on around the UK and in various cities, like Cheatham Hill still is pretty poor. So this flat was really Spartan. It was more like a, like a student flat, uh, very unlived in in many senses, like in many senses of the word, like there was, there's nothing on the walls. It was like, you know, strip lighting on the ceiling. The kitchen had no food in it kind of thing, even though this is where he said this was like his permanent abode. The one thing that was in there was a room that had been turned into a kind of makeshift gym. So he's like, hey, look, do you want to talk while like, I work out? And I was like really weirded out by this. Like I didn't really want to like have an interview with him while he's like, you know, pumping weights. Uh, it's kind of a weird thing. So I said, no, thank you. But they started talking. And little by little, over time, Hassan started to open up to Shiv. Now, it isn't all smooth sailing. At first, he's asked for money before he'll speak. And the BBC were clear, no, that wasn't going to happen. Most news outlets in the UK won't pay sources for stories because you can't be certain they're not just telling you what they think you want to hear. 
But then, with Hassan, Shiv was also well aware of legislation around terrorism and what and when he would be required to pass information on to law enforcement. It was all new then, and so, you know, an organisation like the BBC was very wary, and perhaps rightly so, um, that, you know, journalists would be caught by this. And And the rule was this, that basically if you knew anything that would be useful to a terrorism investigation... You yourself had to report that, otherwise you'd be uh, run foul of the law, uh, and obviously terrorism law as well. And that makes, makes interviewing people like Hassan Bhatt and other jihadis really difficult, because they're like, well, anything you say could be useful. I'm not a police officer, so how do I know what's useful to, a, to an investigation? But like, I also have sources, and I can't just like go to the police and be a police informant. So how do I run this conversation? And the idea is that, look, if it was obviously criminal in its nature, if he said, look, I knew how, you know, the 7-7 bombing played out and I know all the secret players behind it, clearly I'd have to go to the police. But, you know, if he said, look, my name's Hassan Butt, that's probably not that useful. So something in between there. But that leaves a lot of room in a conversation. So, you know, I was kind of a bit tense about all of this, but I thought, OK, I can use my head and take my notes and see where we are. So, aware of all of this, Shiv started to take notes of their conversations. Hassan told him how he'd been to Pakistan. He said that after the US invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, many fervent British radicals had done the same. Some had travelled across the highly porous border into Afghanistan itself to join the Taliban. As the years passed and the violence raged on, a kind of network grew in Pakistan. And one of those arms was called Al-Muhajiran, a terrorist network that was based in the UK. Hassan said he'd been working for Al-Muhajiran in Pakistan. He seemed to be closely tied up with some really shady high-up characters. But despite these suspect connections, Shiv still found himself warming to Hassan. That's the first rule that um, I always teach journalists. is like, sources aren't your friends. It's really easy to fall into that trap. But he's a friendly guy. He wasn't aggressive. He wasn't hostile. He was thoughtful. Uh, he was funny at times. You know, he'd make jokes. And he was born and brought up in, in this with British culture. So we connected. You know, when he uses a phrase like okie-dokie, I'm like, okay, this guy's just like me. Just like, we're sure he's from Manchester. But it turns out, you know, asking him about his childhood, we had pretty similar childhoods. You know, we'd face racism in sort of similar ways, him perhaps more so than me. You know, I could connect with that. We had similar-ish fathers, like, you know, both kind of, criminal in their ways and uh, and broken their families apart in that sense too. So there was a lot to connect over. So yeah, I liked him. Shiv kept working on the research for the script and having got all he needed from Hassan started to call less and less. But then something changed. Something that would put Hassan right at the centre of the story. Hassan had given Shiv plenty to write about. He'd told him how he'd sent arms to the Taliban, organised terrorist training for British Muslims, raised funds for terrorism, incited others to terrorism, encouraged attacks on political and military targets in the UK and associated with the 7-7 bombers. Months had passed since Shiv first met Hassan, Then one day, he got an email. In it, Hassan was telling Shiv he wanted out. He wanted to turn his back on this terrorist network. Basically, I'm asking for your help. In order for me to go alone, I need a sound financial base. This means getting a job. Now, I don't want to be a normal 9-to-5 call centre position. I have much to offer in the world of journalism and thought. I want your help. 
to get a job in a think tank or as a consultant for people who are concerned to work towards building bridges into my world. This was big. A guy who had put himself at the centre of the British jihadi network was now saying he wanted to turn his back on that life. He called back. He said, look, I think I'm on the verge of leaving the, the British jihadi network. This was kind of news to me, kind of blindsided me. And he said, I don't know what to do with my life if, I'm going to, if, you know, if I finally take this step. Like, what should I do? So I said, why don't you write your story down? So I told him, why don't you write? And um, perhaps you should write a book. So he said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Can you help me do that? And I think um, there probably isn't a decision in my life that I regret more than that. I don't regret almost anything, but I probably, I think I regret that, saying yes. He was in his mid-twenties at the time, and while doing well as a journalist, was keen to make his mark. Helping to write a book about a former jihadi sympathiser turning his back on his old ways, well, that was just too good an opportunity to turn down. You don't get many chances to kind of change the world or change people's mindsets. I was so enamoured with the idea that here was a jihadi who was about to come out and say, you know what, this is what it's like on the inside and it's awful and hopefully persuade a mass of other young British Muslims not to go and do the same thing that he had done. And on top of that, he was starting to come up with theological sort of answers to the jihadis. And no one's still done that really, uh, certainly not from an English perspective, as in using English as the language to communicate. And, and I mean, that whole theological debate in that world is fascinating. So Hassan started telling Shiv his story. He wrote in an email, you wanted to know where the alternative voice to radical Islam would come from. I firmly believe that it will come from within the movement. The heart of that is that he kind of had this very interesting background in, in, in Britain, but he'd flown to Pakistan just before September the 11th and he'd been involved with Mahal Mahajaroon. He'd spoken out when being very close to Omar Bakri, who used to lead al-Mahajroon and now fled the country uh, many years ago, but remained the sort of figurehead of this organization. And then uh, he fell in with more serious terrorists in Pakistan to the point where he was um, funding and giving money over to people who he now realized were setting up bombings, he said, and killing people. And there were two notable bombings that took place in Karachi, which ended up killing a number of Pakistani Muslims outside of the U.S. embassy. And that's when he realized he he was basically a vicious killer. He wasn't even killing Westerners. Uh, he was just killing regular Muslims. And these guys who he'd fallen in with really unsettled his ideology and his moral conscience. Now, Shiv, in the role of ghostwriter, not journalist, was on unfamiliar territory. As a journalist, you'd interrogate every point, try and fact-check it, triangulate it. As a ghostwriter of an autobiography... Now Shiv was just trying to get the timeline and the details clear. There was no doubting that part. I could see he was, you know, he'd exaggerate bits here and there, but usually for dramatic effect, like he'd say things were too cold or like, you know, this, you know, there were loads of people there when maybe it sounded more like there were five. Some of these stories sounded a bit rehearsed, like he told them before to his mates, but, you know, that's acceptable because they were sort of, some of them were kind of entertaining stories about the kind of incompetence of jihadis, like, you know, just can't get, like, logistics together. You know, who knew? Or, like, you know, training camps that just, you know, fell apart like a la four lions, right? So those are the kind of stories he told. Uh, I didn't doubt the basic details. But there was also no one else to verify 
these things. Everyone else in his story, in, in those latter parts of his life in Pakistan, they were all dead. But as all this was going on, word had gotten out in the community that Hassan, once a vocal supporter of jihad, was backpedalling on his message. They started small. He'd sort of complain about, you know, people not wanting to talk to him anymore, backing away. Like, you know, if you've left the network, we really can't talk to you. We don't want to meet anymore. So he got socially isolated. And then other things started happening, like, you know, He'd find a broken window in his house and he wouldn't know what that was. He'd sort of hear from someone that they were really pissed off with him and they were going to get violent with him. So he'd get these kind of violent threats. And things only got more tense when the US show CBS's 60 Minutes contacted Hassan and tried to set up an interview with him. And so now everyone openly knew that this guy had not only just left the network, but he was he used the words that the violence is a cancer in Islam. And the British Jihadi network is, again, I think something like a cancer. But, you know, he was very vocal against it. So now he was on some kind of, in his words, a hit list. It was a matter of time. And he really needed like a proper security detail. And then suddenly Hassan stopped taking Shiv's calls. And then about a week and a half, two weeks or something like that. I can't remember the exact timeline. He kind of just disappeared. He was supposed to attend a meeting down in London with a publisher who was really interested in publishing a story. They sort of seen the 60 Minutes thing. And he disappeared. I couldn't get a hold of him. I just texted around. I was like, you know, what's going on to his friends who had kind of met a small group of people who he'd managed to also like convert into a new sort of theology, if you want, or a new understanding. And they wouldn't speak to me either. And then I got the message back that he'd been stabbed. It's 2007 now, and Shiv's been talking to Hassan for around two years. And now he's just heard that, seemingly in response to him speaking out, Hassan has been stabbed. He was walking home from uh, the metro when a couple of guys, one guy came up from behind him, one in the front, asked him for a, a, a light. And the guy behind him sort of assaulted him from the behind and stabbed him in, twice. Um, and he was kind of going to be left for dead, but for the fact that someone pulled up on the street and, uh, and scared the attackers away. So I was really worried, um, but then I was confused as to what was going on because his friends wouldn't tell me anything more. And, you know, normally when you, someone gets stabbed, like, people want to help, like, the people around them. So I drove up to Manchester. I tried to get in contact with him. He wouldn't pick up the phone. No one else would speak to me. Uh, they told me to stay put in London and not come up. I didn't know what was going on. And all this time, the book publishers are calling Shiv and asking what's going on. When will the book be ready? He didn't know what to tell them. But at the back of his mind was this nagging suspicion. This is weird. This is suspicious. And of course, those two things are really shitty things to do if you're someone's friend, right? You're supposed to be concerned about them. You're not supposed to be there to like take photos while they're basically, you know, lying in their hospital bed. So he got really upset with me. And uh, actually, one of the CBS reporters also rang him trying to find out what, what was going on. And, uh, and he sort of felt harassed over these like two days and eventually started crying on the phone to one of the editors at CBS 60 Minutes. Like, I just need time and space like and no one cares about me. And uh, I think he was right. No one did. 
what happens next to Hassan and Shiv. More after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hassan has been stabbed, but Shiv can't quite believe it. What's more, he's not answering his phone and he won't meet him. Frustrated, Shiv sits down at his computer and writes Hassan an email. So here are five possible reasons for your disappearance. One, you were stabbed, as you said, and you're currently having a minor mental breakdown as to your life's purpose. Two, you never left the network and you've been working with the Jihadi network all along. Three, you're working for MI5. Four, you're a complete fantasist. Five, you've been killed. It works, Hassan replies. He went away, he left the country, went to Dubai for like three weeks or something like that. And when he came back, as I said, we kind of went through all the details of the stabbing. And he showed me his shoulder and like these two scars. Actually, they were red marks. They hadn't healed. And I believed him. I believed that this had happened. And I believed that I'd been really, a really terrible friend to him by not only just having doubted him, but like by treating him as a commodity in, in his own, for his own book. So, shame that he hadn't believed him about the stabbing. Shiv and Hassan got to work in earnest. So we kind of put our heads down and um, I put my head down anyway and tried to write this and get this. I got this commissioned as well. So I, I began writing it in earnest. And actually... Things started blossoming back between us again as, as friends. And like we were talking every day, not just talking about his life and those interviews had sort of finished, but mainly about the theology. That really kind of took this is where he sort of put his head down as well and started thinking like, you know, how do I talk about Islam differently? Like what is the solution to like radical theology? What are the ways out? 
apart from simply saying, look, Islam's a religion of peace, which is basically sort of a denial mode in his eyes. In March 2008, I was getting close towards finishing this book, this book that I was ghostwriting for Hassan. And we were coming towards maybe the final chapter of, of the first draft. And my editor was calling me every day, getting really annoyed that I kind of was like two months late already. And then one day... I got a knock on the door and it was the Greater Manchester Police. Uh, it was at eight o'clock in the morning and there were three coppers there from the terrorism unit who, who'd said they were driven down from Manchester and they didn't want to say why. And I was like, well, you know, why are you here? I presumed it's about like a car. Like I had this car that was just always getting into accidents, like uh, unbeknownst to me like where I was leaving it. Like people always like ramming into it. I thought like three officers, but excessive, like from Manchester. And they said, no, we're here to talk to you about a book that you're writing, which is really sinister because you don't expect that. You're like, what? That's not illegal. Like, what the hell? Shiv, standing there in his boxer shorts, blinked in the morning light. For a second, he couldn't think what to do. He was about to step aside to let the police officers in when he thought better of it. Then I figured it out, like in my head. I said, look, you know, why don't you go and have breakfast around the corner? It's like a really nice Israeli cafe. I was in Golders Green at the time. And I'll get changed. Clearly, I'm no fit state to receive guests. You see, Shivered remembered the golden rule. Protect your sources at all costs. And in his flat were pages and pages of notes from Hassan. At that point, I knew that if I let them into the house, they might search the house, they might find my tapes and all my source materials. So I packed it off and gave it to a friend who gave it to another friend who was going to Paris that night. So by the time they started talking to me, it was, it was on its way to the Eurostar. So with his notes safely squirreled away, Shiv headed out to see what the police wanted. So what the, the police did in fact want was my, my... They said a couple of things. They're like, look, we're investigating Hassan Butt's best friend who turns out to uh, about to go on trial for being a member of Al-Qaeda. I was like, okay, well, he didn't tell me about that. And that's a pretty important detail. They also said, look, um, we're not really sure about Hassan. Trying to insinuate that he was a sort of, maybe he was still a member of the Jihadi network or not, or terrorist. And like, these are police officers, so they're supposed to be suspicious. So I kind of took that with a grain of salt and wanted to push them. But then I also got really worried. I was like, maybe Hassan is still a Jihadi. Shiv had no idea where he stood. Had he been talking to a repentant former jihadi, or had he been played all along, part of some terrorist cell's long game somehow? Shiv didn't know, but he knew he had a duty to protect his source, that simply handing over his notes to the police would betray his journalistic code of ethics. The Greater Manchester Police weren't simply asking for information on Hassan, they wanted all Shiv's notes on anything he'd ever written relating to terrorism. This was a precedent far bigger than just Shiv and Hassan. So he decided to fight it. He'd be going to court. But the first trial didn't go well. That case went against me. The judge said, you know, basically under terrorism law, like, you know, this is, this is a terrorism investigation. You really do have to hand over all your notes. So then the NUJ stepped in and the Sunday Times stepped in. The case went to appeal. The Index on Censorship and the writer's charity, Penn, got involved and supported Shiv with advice. The NUJ and Sunday Times and other newspapers banded together to pay the legal fees. But as the cases proceeded through the courts, more information about Hassan was coming out. The police then came to me with these transcripts of these interviews of Hassan in custody. Now, for the first couple of days, like his lawyer told me he hadn't said anything. He'd like no commented out the interviews. But then suddenly he started talking. What he said was flawed me completely. 
it's a couple of details. The first one was, I've been fabricating my entire story to Shiv. Everything I told him about Pakistan is a lie. Everything I told him about like being part of a terrorist network in Pakistan is a lie. And I did it because Shiv was a patsy. He believed me. And I wanted to make money off the book. I didn't know what to say to that, like in my head. But like, uh, basically, I, my, my vision started to go blurry, like where you think, you know, your whole life has just been turned upside down. And like, I couldn't see. I was so like blinded by and confusion. And then they said this, which is that on the day after Hassan had been stabbed, and they didn't say after he'd been stabbed, they kind of just gave the date. And I had to, I realized what that date was. He was visiting his best friend, the guy who was on trial in the high security prison in Manchester. They know that because they have him on camera. And I realized he, he must have lied to me about the stabbing. There's no other way. Like, he could not have been stabbed. He said he was in recuperating in a private ward. So now I knew he lied about the stabbing, like, in a really sort of fairly meticulous way. And in fact, they went on to say he'd faked the stabbing and stabbed himself so he could prove to me that he'd been stabbed. And I knew that was true. The police were right about that. So I didn't know Hassan Bhatt anymore. And I realized I had been lied to. I was a patsy. I didn't know what to do. I was so angry. Everything he thought he knew about Hassan now appeared to be a lie. Shiv had risked his journalistic career for a man who was now saying he had played him all along. Hassan was saying he'd made everything up, that he'd fed stories to the media, and that his portrayal of himself as a terrorist planner who later renounced violence in order to fight Islamist extremism was a total fabrication, that he was only ever in it for the money. It was devastating for Shiv. But there wasn't time to pause, the court case was still going through and there was still an important journalistic principle to defend. Eventually, the high courts found a kind of compromise. The judge said Shiv did have to hand over some information, but it could be copies rather than his original notebooks and that he could blank out information which would identify confidential sources other than Hassan. Detective Chief Inspector Tony Porter, head of Greater Manchester Police Counter-Terrorism Unit, told the press, We've always recognised the value of investigative journalism, but in this particular case, we think that Shiv Malik took the wrong stance. We were always ready to negotiate with him, but we were never given the chance, he said. We need to have the full material that relates to a terrorist organisation. We need to get to the truth. How did this whole experience change the way you work as a journalist? Well, I guess for the good, in the sense that I think I became a lot less, a hell of a lot less naive, a bit more hard-bitten. I remained positive, actually. I think I was, um, I said, I sort of came back and I worked, ended up getting a job with The Guardian uh, as a reporter and then as an investigative journalist. And those were great years. We've only just come to a close in a sense, but like I kind of laid off the terrorism beat for a while. That was really good. I wrote a book on economics um, that really got my head out of it. But that wasn't the end of Hassan's story. In yet another extraordinary twist, 
Last year, he was found guilty and jailed for a 1.1 million eBay fraud after he sold non-existent electrical goods to 3,000 customers. This was back in Christmas 2014. He's now been jailed for 13 years for multiple counts of fraud, money laundering and perverting the course of justice. Perhaps cold comfort for Shiv, but proof if it was needed that this was never a man to be trusted. The judge at the fraud trial said, I find it almost impossible to decide when you speak whether or not the truth is falling from your lips. You're a man who has woven a complex tapestry of deceit throughout your adult life. Shiv at least finally managed to untangle himself from that web. That's all for this episode of The Tip-Off. Thanks to Chief Malik. You can find out more in his book, The Messenger, that charts this whole incredible saga. And I've put a link to that in the show notes. This episode of The Tip-Off was edited by Chica Ayres. Our theme tune was by Dice Muse and other music in this episode by Poddington Bear, Blue Dot Sessions and Komaku. I'm Maeve McLennigan. Tune in next time for more stories behind the headlines. The Tip-Off is brought to you in association with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and funding from Charities Aid Foundation. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.